Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. this evening and we expect each one of us individually to encounter God and for the Holy Spirit to illuminate God's word and to change us. But we're also praying that together God will change us as a church family, as his word is opened and as his Holy Spirit comes and so that we would be encouragers of each other and that we learn and grow together as we spend time. So it's really important that we clock one another and we take time with one another when we're here in this space. If you're visiting this evening or you're back in the city after holiday, you've come at a good time because we're starting a new series today. We're going to be looking at standing on the shoulders of giants, the early church in Acts, brand new church, growing at a phenomenal rate, people coming to faith, all over the place, the church that changed the world. Oh Lord, that we would see that now in our day and in our generation. That's really what we want to do. We want to look back to these giants who, if you look very closely, you see actually are ordinary disciples making disciples and say, Lord, what would you be doing then that you might do now in our lives, in my situation, in our city? And we want to learn, we want to examine and we want to learn what God was doing and what his people were doing in that time that we might build on the foundation that the early church established. So if you're up for that, that's what we're going for this evening. Um, I'm just back from my holidays. You don't want to know a thing about it. It was awful. You do not have enough time to listen to all the stories about how bad it was. But I did learn a new word because every day is a school day, I have discovered. My new word of the holidays is portmanteau. It's like quite a posh word, quite a big word. Now, I was asking people this morning, did they know what it meant? And lots of people said it means a suitcase, which I think it probably does. But it also means when you take two separate words and you merge them together to make a brand new word. So, like Labrador Retriever and a Poodle, you put them together, what do you get? A labradoodle, brilliant, you're on this one. Cute labradoodle with his own little labradoodle. So if you take take breakfast and you take lunch, you get brunch, you're good at this. That's brunch really just an excuse to eat cupcakes for breakfast, isn't it? Now this one, probably many of you have done a version of it over the summer. When you take French and you take English, I guess you could do it with any language and you get Frongly. So where really you just shout loudly, you gesture a lot, and you hope that somebody understands what you're doing. One that you might not be so familiar with, if you take a sheep and people. Sheeple. Sheeple. Now I reckon there is a translation of the Bible coming any day soon where Jesus talks about sheeples all over the place. People who are going about their business without really thinking, without really engaging, needing to be led by the shepherd. What about this one? This pro- I, I like this one a lot. Flavour and favourite. Flavour it. It's my favourite. I love it. But tonight, the one that we're really interested in is this one. Friends and family. What do you get when you bring together friends and family? 
Framily. You get framily. And that's really what we're going to be thinking about through August. Framily, family on mission. Now, people, when they hear family on mission, often think, well, that's fine for you with your 2.4 children and your nice house in the suburbs with a big garden for a barbecue and a missional community full of people just like you. You can do family on mission. But what about me in my flat, on my own, with my fragmented life all over the place? What does it look like for me to be part of a family on mission. So whenever you hear me this evening use the word family, I'm not going to laboriously keep using the word family, but will you make sure that you're hearing that, that you're not just imagining blood relations, but you're thinking about all kinds of people from different parts of life coming together and building something new in family. Jesus was all about redefining family. In Mark, in uh, chapter 3, verses 34 and 35, he says this, Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Completely redefining family in the ears and in the hearing of his blood relations. And then in John 19, verses 26 and 27, from the cross, Jesus says this, When Jesus saw his mother there, And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. That kind of family, that kind of family made complete sense to the New Testament church that we're going to read about in Acts tonight. They completely understood what it meant to live in community where bloodlines and front doors and walls and computers didn't keep everybody at a safe distance. But they understood what it was like to live in extended family. Because if you went into any household in the New Testament times, you would find living there a whole mixture of blood relations, distant relatives, people who've come in by marriage, people who work around the business that the family might be part of. Extended family is what the New Testament church did. And it's into that context that we're going to be coming as we look at the book of Acts. We're going to um, turn to Acts 16. And we're going to see where Paul comes and teaches the gospel for the first time in Philippi. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you dig it out? It'll come up on the screen as well, but it's always good if you can be referring back and um, examining what I'm saying, making sure that what I'm saying is there. Um, Acts 6 at verse 11. says, from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. 
This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. And then they left. So these households, these extended families were like the epicenter of community in those days. And actually, as you look across our world and you look across history, you find that extended family is really how society has been structured for centuries. It is only in the West and only in the last 60 or 70 years that these extended families have started to crumble in our society. And I'm not altogether sure that we're the better for it. Isolation and loneliness would be two of the main symptoms of our generation and of our culture. As the biological family has broken down, so has the extended family. And yet as we read this here, we long for something in the way that community was structured, that's actually what we're made for. As humans, we're made to live in community. And we're not just made to live in our own little boxes with the people that we choose to build our lives with. 
but we're made for a broader, a wider, a more dynamic community than that. And you see when that community is allowed to flourish, what happens here in the book of Acts. This missionary man, Paul, has been traveling. Wherever he goes, he tells people about Jesus. He'll go to the public places and he'll declare wherever the people are gathered that Jesus is Lord and invite people to come and know him. And he's doing the same here in Philippi as he comes as the first believer to bring the gospel there. Now, normally he'd head for the synagogue. It's not possible in Philippi because there is no synagogue. We don't know if it's because it's a Roman colony or because you needed 10 Jewish men to make a synagogue. And it seems that all the people that are praying by the river are women. So there's no synagogue. But actually as well, the disciples, the apostles have chosen that they are not just gonna go to the Jewish people where they are. They're gonna go to the Gentiles. They're gonna go to people who don't yet know that there's even a God and speak to them about Jesus. So they're deliberately going where the people are. That's their strategy. They don't want to just be with the religious people. They want to be wherever the people are. And so Paul comes to where these people are praying and he sits down and he waits to be asked to speak. And Lydia is there. And Lydia seems to be somebody who has behaved like a Jew and believed the things that the Jewish people believed, but hasn't actually become a Jew. But when she hears Paul speaking about Jesus, something stirs in her. She recognizes that the man that he is talking about is the Lord, and she chooses to put her faith in him. She's really ready to receive what Paul brings. And it says within a sentence that all of Lydia's household were baptized that there seems immediately to have been a domino effect. Lydia comes to faith and the people that she is living in such close community with hear and see the change in her. They hear about the Lord that she is putting her faith in and others come to faith straight away. It's like that domino effect. One comes and then others follow. I think that's something that we find it hard to really imagine because we all live in our little boxes with our own little diaries. Maybe never since we lived in halls of residence have we chosen to live in such close proximity with other people. But yet when other people see our lives close up and hear our decisions and see the one that we worship, the impact that it has on them is significant. So Lydia comes to faith and her household comes to faith. I don't know what that experience has been like for you. I haven't seen my immediate family come to faith yet, but I pray that they'll see that Jesus is Lord in my life and it'll have that kind of impact. But I have seen it in other parts of my family. And my husband, Stuart, is uh, much bolder than me, much more solid than me. And he was challenged once, I think by somebody here, to listen to God for three friends every day, to pray for them, to listen for them, and then to encourage them with what they thought God was saying. Now, Stuart being Stuart, he doesn't pick three Christians. He picks three friends who aren't Christians. He picks one of his work colleagues and he picks his two sisters. And so each day he spends time with his journal and his Bible, listening to what God has to say for the people that he's praying about. Um, and he, he particularly had something for his sister who lives in England and he'd put it down in an email um, for her to read. And there was bits of it that he nearly missed out, but he decided to put it all in, wasn't sure how she would receive it. And, and probably that for her started a real stirring in her that, that says that there's a spiritual hunger and there's a faith now that there wasn't before. 
But watching on in the sidelines was his other sister, who was even further away from faith things. And while she listened to the things that Stuart had for her, she was really intrigued by what he had for her other sister. And listening in and seeing the truth that was there and being pointing to Jesus, she came to faith because she could see so close up what it looked like for somebody to come to faith in Jesus for the first time. And she was recognizing that God was speaking, that God was at work. What would it look like for us to live in such interconnected and interlocked community that one life changed means community changed? Because we don't keep people at a distance, but we invite people in like was happening here. And Paul and Silas didn't just bring Lydia to faith and then head on to the next household. It says that they actually were invited in to spend time in Lydia's house. So that would be the male missionaries, the female household leader, the seamstresses, the supermodels of the day, all in community together in this household. And Paul and Silas spent time there because they knew that they were going to leave. They'd brought the message of Jesus. They'd stirred up the interest but they were gonna leave. They wanted to leave a household who knew how to walk with Jesus and to how to help others to do the same. So they came and lived right at the center of that household and showed people how to live like Jesus and showed people how to love Jesus more. And then were able to go from that place, leaving a thriving community, interconnected and ready to bless all kinds of other people who would come. Lydia's household coming to faith in Jesus. You then in Acts 16 get this tiny wee story in the middle between Lydia's household and the jailer's household of this slave girl. And she's part of an extended family as well. It's a wee bit more of a sort of EastEnders style of extended family. It's pretty dysfunctional. There's one girl who basically is a, a fairground attraction. And these two guys who make money out of her, as she goes around telling people their fortunes and, and being the money earner for them. And a bit like when Jesus encountered somebody with an evil spirit in them, that evil spirit would shout out because it recognized that Jesus was Lord. So with Paul and Silas, this girl, the evil spirit that was in her was recognizing that these men were coming in Jesus' name. And so she's shouting out, listen to them, they're talking sense. This is, this is, this is Jesus. And it doesn't say anywhere that anybody asked for this spirit to be cast out of her. I think just she ground Paul down until such a point if I can't take anymore and the evil spirit is cast out of her. And carnage erupts because the extended family are all affected. Everybody's earnings have dried up in an instant because she was their money maker. And so they go to the local authorities, they start a riot and predictably Paul and Silas find themselves in prison. Not really what you would describe an extended family, a household, a prison cell, a bunch of ramshackle people brought together for all kinds of different reasons um, and to, to just to wait out and to see what was going to happen. They're put in chains, the jailers put on special guard with them so that they might not escape or do anything to jeopardize the precarious position that the jailers in here. But little do we know that in that prison cell already lives a dynamic family on mission because in that prison cell already dwells the Holy Spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit, along with Jesus and Father God, is the original, the defining, the calling family on mission. We often hear Carol saying, don't we, that there is nobody that Father God doesn't love, that Jesus didn't die for, and that the Holy Spirit isn't trying to win. The ultimate family on mission is in that prison cell, waiting to do something that they can't yet see, but you can tell that Paul and Silas are anticipating it because they're chained, they're flogged, they're stripped, and they're sitting there in that prison cell, singing and praying because they can see that God is at work. Because there is no prison cell of man's making or anybody else's that the Holy Spirit cannot reach and cannot bring change to. I don't know how easily discouraged you are, whether you're a glasses half empty, glasses half full kind of a person. I remember being really challenged by a friend because I was looking on a set of circumstances, just really struggling to see what good had come in the last half year or so. I was struggling to see if there had been any change or any real difference. And my friend said to me, hey, are you telling me that God hasn't been at work? Are you telling me that you think that the Holy Spirit has left this situation? Are you telling me that you think that God has not been interested in this situation that you've just described? Well, of course I didn't, but I needed the eyes of faith that we were singing about earlier to see the things that are as yet unseen, where God is at work in situations that we can't begin to imagine how they're going to turn out. And yet transformation is possible because God himself is a family on mission and his plans and purposes are not going to be thwarted by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So even this prison cell becomes a place of mission from where whole households can come to faith. And I just want to take a wee minute to to look at Paul and Silas because they are so key in this whole story. The evangelists who come into the situation and begin to talk about Jesus and very quickly, the people who are spiritually hungry can arise to the surface. You see who they are because these guys are bold enough to talk about Jesus, where some of the rest of us are sort of hanging back, worrying about causing a bit too much offense to anybody. They're just really ready to talk about Jesus. Don't we love the evangelists in our situations? Won't we pray that next Saturday there'll be a whole bunch of guys going out and being trained and released to be people who love to speak about Jesus? and who God uses to bring people to come to know him. We are all called to talk about Jesus. We're all asked to tell our story and share our faith. But Ephesians 4 tells us that some are given to be evangelists. And what seems to happen and happened here is that the evangelist comes in, makes a fair bit of noise, tells a few stories about Jesus, and you see people becoming hungry coming to faith and then the ordinary people around about start to tell their story. So Lydia tells her story, the jailer tells his story and the families come to faith. 
We need the evangelists, don't we, to be released so that we can all be witnesses to what we know is true. People who will shake us out of our fear of offending people. People who will call us out and make us uncomfortable with the status quo. We've got to so honor those amongst us who are readier to speak about Jesus than, than perhaps we might be. We've got to make sure that they're released, not to be doing all kinds of stuff for the Christian community, but released to lead us into mission, that we might really make a difference in the city. We've got to really make sure that the evangelists among us don't just get frustrated with us because we seem quite comfortable not talking too much, not causing too much offense, just keeping everything nice and safe and easy and accessible for people. We want to ask the evangelist to put Jesus at the heart of everything that we do so that we can be witnesses. That's what Paul and Silas are doing here. And then they're allowing the households to come, the communities to come and tell their stories of who Jesus is and of how he's transformed lives. And so when they go, they leave behind these households who know how to do this together. Communities who love one another, who love Jesus, and who know how to love other people, welcome them in and introduce them to Jesus so that they would become followers too. They've learned how to do it together. Well, what does extended family look like for us? Because I don't know about you, but something really stirs in me as I read Acts 16. I think, Lord, let that not just be something that belongs to a past generation. Lord, now in our broken, fragmented society, would you help us to recapture what it looks like to live in extended family, community so close that the barriers come down, the things that keep people out and stop people seeing go. We actually live with this depth of relationship that changes lives. Because it's what Jesus did, a single man who gathered a bunch of people around him and built family with them. We want to learn to do the same. It's why we started missional communities. It's why we've got student communities and 20s communities and multi-generational communities. They're not just church organized groups that you sign up to and attend when you can. They're families. They're families where we long to love one another and cheer one another on and go together to make a difference in our world. We've come a long way. We've been doing them for about four or five years. We've learned a lot in that time. But you know, we've got a long way to go. And learning about extended family is such a vital part of that, that we could really recapture what it looks like to be family on mission. I don't know what kind of household you grew up in, whether it was a, a happy one or a good one. But I, my guess would be for most of us, through most of your childhood and young adulthood, your parents decided and planned most things for you. You know, when you're really, really little, they decide everything for you. What you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, when you're going to eat it, when you're going to sleep, even right down to when you might poo and need your nappy change. They plan it. You get those books, don't you? I think you do. They tell you how to program your children such that that's how it happens. But as you go older, as you come into maturity, the parents and the family don't do everything for the children anymore. They might still be responsible for, I don't know, Christmas dinner, for the big birthday parties, for the big occasions that the family would come together. 
But the rest of the time, the adults and the house and the family take initiative, build their own sibling relationships, take initiative to go and visit other members of the family. The parents don't need to do it all. And so it is with our missional communities. It's brilliant that we've got leaders in our missional communities who'll organize missional community Sundays, who'll make sure you know which small group you're part of, who'll help you to be part of that community. But it's not their job to do it all for us. As we grow into maturity, we take responsibility ourselves. We have freedom in our families that we're on mission with together. To, 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 to deepen relationships, to ask individuals to come around what God's doing in our lives, to go together into the situations that God is taking us into. You can't invite your whole missional community to the pub with your work colleagues on a Friday night, but you can invite two or three of them. You maybe can't have your whole community round for a barbecue with your neighbours or with your team at work, but you can invite a few of them. So what might it look like for us to begin to take initiative as grown-ups in the family that's on mission together? We have roles to play because, you know, discipleship isn't just a small group that you attend. And mission isn't just another activity to fill your diary. But family on mission is who we are 24-7, wherever we go, whether we're with our family or whether we're not. In, in my family, my little girl won't be going into primary four on her own. I won't actually physically be in her school bag, but we'll be praying for the things that are important to her. We'll be getting to know the families that are around her life. My son won't be going to secondary school on his own. I am tempted to go follow him, pick up all the stuff and take the things that he's forgotten, but we won't be. But we will be actually, because we'll be praying for him. We'll be cheering him on. As he goes, we go. My friends, my husband, they don't go to their workplaces on their own. They go with a cheer team behind them, praying for them. Your family might not be with you, but you are still part of a family on mission together. So who's your extended family? Yes, it's your missional community, but who else might it be? So we film up here. A bit cheesy, but it'll get you thinking. The holidays are here again, so I'm inviting all my friends, the people who are close to me. They're my extended family. You've got my mom, my sis, my brother, my surprisingly cool stepmother, and the two kids that she had before she ever met my dad. Next, you've got my aunts and cousins. They showed up with several dozen friends of theirs. It's fine with me. I've got enough for all. Here in the hall, you've got my office mates, my best friend, and his online date. They've all come here to celebrate. This is my family. My judo coach, my allergist, my MySpace friends and Twitter list, and the first girl that I ever kissed. You're beautiful. I love you. Cause there's one truth I have found And it's never let me down When you stock up on joy There's enough to go round Singing joy Enough to go round Enough to go round And around and around and around Singing joy Enough to go round Enough to go round Thanks Coke for starting Christmas in August. <laughs> Family on Mission is for single people. It's for divorced people. 
It's for widowed people. It's for people with no children. It's for people with 10 children. It's for empty nesters. It's for teenagers. It's for students. It's for graduates. It's for people who know Jesus and it's for people who don't know Jesus yet. There are no boundaries for family on mission. What does it look like then for us to capture it more? What does it look like to take the communities that we're already part of and to have firmly at the heart of it a family who are on mission together? Well, just a few thoughts to finish tonight. We strengthen our muscles for mission by going together. So when we gather as a community with a shared focus, maybe it's a part of the city, maybe it's a people that we're learning to love and to serve, when we do that together, when we say who we are and we go in the name of Jesus and we're encouraged to speak about him, it strengthens our muscles for mission. When I learn to speak about Jesus to a girl on the street in Leith, or to a teenager on a street corner in Ox Gangs, or to an adult with learning difficulties, or to somebody in the union in Mission Week. When I learn to do that there with others around me, so I become bolder to do it with my flatmate, my work colleague, or my boss, or my neighbor. And so when we're together, we give one another the courage and the confidence to take steps Not that we wouldn't do it on our own, but so that we would learn to do it in our own situations with the people that God has us amongst every day. So that shared focus of our missional community still becomes vital for this family on mission that's at the heart of it, so that our muscles for mission are strengthened. We want to be strong and confident and courageous, not just when others are around but when we get these opportunities in our everyday. We want to ask God to help us to see things differently. I don't know about you, but I can sometimes be really tempted to think that everybody that I know who doesn't know Jesus yet is secretly dreading the day that I mention his name. And at that point, they're going to run for the hills because it's the thing they've always been fearful of. And all along, they've been my friend, but it's been okay because I've not talked about Jesus. I think sometimes in my worst moments, that's what I think about my friends that don't know Jesus. But actually, my experience and Acts 16 tells me that there are people all over the place, hungry, for a God who knows them, hungry for a community with purpose, hungry to know what they're made for and who they're made for. And so we want to ask God to help us to see differently so that we would see that everybody that we know is only a few steps away from coming to be part of our family on mission, whether or not they've come to know Jesus for themselves at that point, because they are welcome whatever stage of faith or none they are at. The doors are flung wide open. I don't know about you, but I need to ask people to help me, especially, I guess, from the communities that we're already part of. Who are the few people in your community that you can especially invite to know a bit more of the stories, to pray for the people by name, to come to the pub with you, to be around when you invite your team for dinner, whatever it might be. Who are those people that you can say, I wanna make myself accountable to you. 
I want to tell you about the people that I'm praying for and I want you to encourage me to be bold and to step out and to talk about Jesus. And when I get that chance to have that conversation, to try and have another one in in the next week while and not to be the one that stands in the way of having the conversation about Jesus. Will you help me? And we want to be people who offer to do the same for other people. So you might not want to ask, but maybe you get the opportunity to offer and that deepens community. Do you know, no community is deepened without risk. Risk of people saying, sorry, what are you talking about? Sorry, I, I would want to do that with you. And sorry, sorry, me. It's a risk. It's always a risk. But we ask people if we can pray for their friends, can we get to know their work colleagues? Can we cheer them on? in the things that they are doing. We take that initiative. Do you know what, whenever, I don't know if you've had this experience, you bring somebody to church and it's once you're here, suddenly you have this heightened awareness of everything, whether the coffee's decent, whether the people are friendly, whether the person at the front makes any sense, whether the preacher's any good, whether the worship means anything, whether the whole thing is just cringy. But on every other week, you don't notice because you're just thinking about yourself. What would it be for us to put ourselves in a position that every week we are longing to cheer on our brothers and sisters around us who are longing to introduce people to Jesus, who everywhere they go are living Jesus, speaking Jesus, longing to make Jesus known. And that we are praying for those things and we're aware of those things and we are helping in whatever way we can to encourage and to strengthen their relationship and their witness. Do you know, we've got to take down barriers if this is going to happen. We've got to hand over our house keys, our car keys. We've got to open our wallets. We've got to open our diaries. We've got to make ourselves available to other people, not just when it suits us, but when it's right for them. I committed myself and my family about, I don't know, 18 months ago that on every Wednesday evening, I would make enough food to feed an army, even though I wouldn't necessarily know if anybody else was coming. I'd have the containers ready to put them in the freezer. And I've just said it to quite a lot of families around where I live. We'd love to eat together really regularly. Wednesday night's a really good night for us. Come, bring the kids. We'll just all muck in. It'll never be anything great, but come can absolutely guarantee that it's on the week that I am stretched beyond belief where there's no time. I haven't even thought about what to cook. There's very little in the fridge that my friend around the corner with her three children will say, is it all right if we come for tea today? A couple of hours time. Is that all right? And everything in me wants to say, no, if you could just come when it's convenient for me. Because actually I'll diary you in and we'll sort it all out. And, and Because actually I would like to be in control of my diary and my life and the way that I do these relationships. But family on mission doesn't count that a luxury. It counts that a disadvantage. It says that that's something that prevents us from building deep relationship with barriers and boundaries down. And we want to let go of those. So what will it look like to open our diaries and to open our homes and to open our wallets such that everything that God gives to us would be for sharing so that people would come to know him. And then finally, you've got to start with where you're at. Right back at the top, I was telling you that family on mission is not about a blood relationship. It's about who Jesus calls family. 
But there's something very important about family on mission that starts like it did in Acts 16 in the home, in the place that you live now, with the people that you live with, with the rhythms and patterns, with the invitations that you make, with the way that you talk about Jesus, with the things that you pray for, for the way you cheer one another on, for the way that you welcome one another's friends into your home, that you do it together. Because if you're not part of something at the center where your home is up for that, then as soon as you start to add other people and structure, they're not gonna suddenly magically make it happen. It's an attitude of heart and a desire that we have. So for those of us who live on our own and love to be the ones who are in complete control of when that front door opens and when it shuts, what does it look like for us to say, Lord, my home is for you to use whatever way you want and I am ready to be interrupted and disrupted by the people that you bring alongside me? What does it look like for you with your flatmates with those who know Jesus, to be able to ask them to pray with you and for you, to share stories, the good and the bad, the hard and the celebratory, and to cheer one another on. What does it look like in our marriages to pray really regularly for one another? Something that so easily drifts out of Christian marriages because of busyness, because you know what? It's actually sometimes just all a bit too awkward. But actually we choose, we decide at the heart of our homes where we live with other believers to put that in there. And where we've chosen to live with people who don't know Jesus, we bring our family on mission around us and we ask them to cheer us on and to pray with us because that family on mission is right at the heart of where we are. And so we wanna ask God to do that in us, don't we? to let go of the control thing that says my life is mine, to live on my own the way that I want to live it and others get invited in when I say so. And instead to say I belong, I belong to something bigger than myself, I belong to something that is not mine to control, I belong to something that Jesus is ultimately about you and is gonna be for your glory. And I go with those people wherever you take me, whatever you have for us. I'd love to pray that for us just now. I'm gonna pray for that, whatever our circumstances, that God would do that. Um, and I'd also, I'd love to pray for our evangelists this evening um, and to ask that God would really do something around them that means all of us get to be meeting people and sharing our story with people who don't know Jesus. I'm gonna do that in a minute. But then after that, we're gonna just give a bit of space around the auditorium here. If you are here and your flatmates are here, any of them, we'd love just to encourage you to get together and to pray that the house that you share would become an epicenter of this kind of family on mission. We'd love if you're here with your spouse that you might do the same. Or if there are others here from your community, your missional community, that you are part of, that you might gather them and pray that this kind of family would be at the center of what you do. So the band will come and lead us in worship, but we would love this just to be a place of prayer and the prayer team will be around and able to bless what you're asking the Lord for. But let me pray for us just now and then we'll take that space and that time 
together. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that there is no place that is out with the realm of your authority and your work. We thank you that whatever our circumstances, whatever prison cell or barren situation we find ourselves in, that you are not absent. And we want to ask Holy Spirit for you to give us the eyes of faith, that we would see what you are doing in the situations that we were in. And we ask Holy Spirit for you to transform them, for you to come in power, for you to change the things that just now to us seem hopeless. Would you transform? Lord, we want to pray this evening for the people that we live with. We pray for flatmates who do us good and call us on and out and up who point us to Jesus, who pray for the things that are on our hearts, that you'd help us to do the same. Or we pray this evening for marriages, deep, rich marriages with Jesus at the heart, where everybody else, children, neighbours, friends who come around that home are welcomed into something that is inclusive, deep and rich. And Lord, we pray for those this evening who live on their own amongst people who don't know you yet. Jesus, we pray for courage. We pray for perseverance and for patience. We pray for joy. We pray for Jesus to be evident in that place and for others to come to know him. Lord, we pray this evening for that domino effect that we would live lives so connected to one another that there are no barriers to stop people coming to hear about Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask you to show us the barriers that we've let come in to our circumstances. And would you break them? Would you break the power of them? And would you help us to dismantle the day-to-day impact of them? that we would be people who live family. And Lord, we want to pray for the evangelists that you've gifted to us as a church. We thank you that we have friends who just love to speak about you. They're not scared. And Lord, we cheer them on. We ask for fresh anointing. We ask for fresh opportunity. We ask for people who have had no contact with Christians to come into relationship with them. We ask for people to be coming into our communities all the time who don't know you yet. And would you be helping us to be witnesses to them? But Lord, bless, encourage, strengthen and equip our evangelists. Lord, thank you that we're not on our own. Thank you that we've got each other. Thank you so, so much, Holy Spirit that you go with us wherever we go. Pray that we'd know that reality. Amen.